Today's TribeCast is presented by the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service. The Texas A&M University System invites nominations and applications for the position of Agency Director, Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service. Learn more at parkersearch.com. And Texas Southern University. Become a catalyst, a game changer, a force to be reckoned with, and the one who will make a difference in public service. We educate all of Texas. Join us at the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, I'm gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Hey everybody, this is Joyce Chevalier, Democratic nominee for Texas State Comptroller. Consider yourself lucky. Even though it's scorching hot here in Texas, you're about to listen to the coolest podcast going, Tribcast. Grab a glass of iced tea and enjoy. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, June 27th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast. Uh, I'm joined this week by three of our investigative reporters, Jay Root. Howdy. Nina Satija. Hi there. And Edgar Walters, who have been uh, covering the unfolding immigration humanitarian crisis on the border. And later you'll be joined by familiar face, our executive editor, Ross Ramsey. Um, We're taking your questions, and we have been taking your questions today already via Facebook and Twitter. So we're excited to get started here. Um, Folks, so since the last time we were around this table last week, uh, the Trump administration has pulled back its policy that led to the forced separations of border crossing parents and their minor children. It has pledged, at least in some cases, to reunite kids with their parents. But there's obviously massive confusion around all this. So what do we know exactly right now about whether the feds are going to be reuniting kids with their parents and uh, in which circumstances those kids are going to be reunited or not? Any of you can jump in. Just get a, like, give us the lay of the land. Go ahead, Nina. <laughs> I was going to ask you to take that one, Jay. Well, I, I will say this. From, from the perspective of the migrant that I talked to inside the facility in Livingston, his lawyer at the time, this changes a lot because there's a group lawyering phenomenon that's going on. And from other immigration lawyers that I've talked to, you know, one of the big problems is that these parents – uh, of these children who have been separated from their children are, are cut off from the outside world. So whatever it is the feds are saying, it ain't cutting through to them mm-hmm. inside their detention facilities. And the what, what you pick up when you talk to the migrants and or their attorneys is that there's a, there's a an inc- you know, basically the incoherence that's coming out of Washington is being replicated on the ground. I mean, you know, uh, after... Uh, Donald Trump rescinded basically or, or he, he you know issued this executive order which said we're no longer separating families um, you know Jeff Sessions said no we're still doing zero tolerance we're still arresting everyone that's coming across and then we had um, the the CB, head of CBP uh, Customs and Border Protection say I can't I've lost track of time it was about 48 hours ago I believe said no we're not the Border Patrol is no longer referring people for prosecution and that was the whole reason why we had family separation in the first place so um yes you know we're being told and now there's this this court order that that's also come out of california um in which uh certain standards are supposed to apply for example you know the kids that are under five are supposed to be reunited very quickly 
and I think everyone else 30 days. I believe that's what the order said. So there, there's an incredible amount of, of information churn here, whether it's out of the White House, out of the Justice Department, out of the court system. But how that's playing out on the ground like is like molasses. I mean, is it's it very slow. And it they're chaos, trapped chaos. in I mean, these detention yeah. facilities, and their lawyers will come see them one day, and they go the next, and they're not there anymore. It's, it's, it's very, very chaotic. I would chaotic. say chaos, yeah, I mean, to answer have, your question. So do we have evidence that families are being reunited yet at all, or are we still just hearing from parents and or caregivers? Givers that you know they're still separated. I've I've not heard any evidence from anyone this week of families being being reunited. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Um, we do know from what the government told us on Saturday night and had been saying previously that about 500 children who were <coughs> initially taken from their parents, or maybe it was 500 families who'd been separated, mm-hmm. and then all those children were um, reunited with their parents. But this was a while ago, maybe a week or two ago. And so we don't know a remaining, you know, 2,000 either family units who've been separated or 2,000 children that have been separated from their parents. We still don't know if any of them have been reunited, to my knowledge. And yeah. Edgar, where are these, where is everyone being held right now? So if you're a parent and you're separated from your kids, like, where are the parents generally and where are the kids generally? Yeah, well, they're pretty much, they're like two very distinct and very different systems. So you, you, you separate the adults, they go into a system that is essentially designed to deport as many people as quickly as possible. Many of them are placed in this like expedited deportation track, uh, fast moving. Um, yeah, parents, uh, adults put into detention centers. Um, these are places that have gotten a lot of press coverage in the past, like Carnes, Pearsall, these big sort of, I mean, jails basically, mm-hmm. um, but like detention facilities. And then the children go to separate facilities. Um, these are the ones that have been in the news lately. Um, like Southwest Key, for example, um, the you know the biggest shelter in Texas is their Casa Padre facility. It's got about fifteen hundred kids. It's a converted Walmart, um, and is it a detention center? Technically, no. Does it kind of look like one? A lot of these facilities do. Yes, um, you know it's the the chain link fences that you see. But but the children facilities are designed to be more sort of therapeutic in nature. Kids go to school there. Um, Southwest Key's talking about like shipping in teachers from the local school district to teach the children. They have like medical clinics on site. So they're slightly different settings. But the issue that you guys were talking about before is that the system the children are in is designed, and I think with protections for children in mind, um, to actually move so much more slowly, Mm -hmm. which presents us really like difficult situation as far as reunification goes if you have parents who's who are in the system which is like designed to deport them as quickly as possible but you have children who have a right to be in these shelters for like 30 days before they ever get their first um, immigration court hearing there's a whole bureaucratic network that's trying to establish if they can be placed with another family member who's in the U.S. who may be thousands of miles away living in like New York Mm -hmm. so anyway two very distinct systems that don't seem to be talking to each other all that well, at least according to the immigration attorneys I've spoken with. Right. Yeah, one one attorney that I spoke with who went into the Port Isabel Detention Center this morning um, and was there yesterday, this is a detention center that houses adults, many of whom have been separated from their children. She was saying that while she was in the detention center, she was hearing different messages coming out 
of the Trump administration. One where someone apparently sort of said, well, we can't guarantee that all families will be reunified. And then later on, she heard the news of this court ruling that says everyone does have to be reunified. And so she's saying, I don't know what to tell these parents who are asking me, when am I going to get my kids back? I have no idea what to tell them because the messages are changing so quickly. And Jay, you had a remarkable story from over the weekend. I think there are lots of questions about, you know, are people being deported without their kids? Or, you know, what are the feds, what is, is, you know, Customs and Border Protection telling these parents? Tell us a little bit about your story from the weekend. Well, so... And, and this, you know, one of the things that's really complicated here is that there's so many different agencies. So Customs and Border Protection has both Customs and the Border Patrol. Customs is the bridges of the ports of entry. Border Patrol is in between the ports of entry, you know, crossing the river. So then they get apprehended by those people. Then they go into ICE custody, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And then uh, if, if the kids are separated, they're under Health and Human Services. So, so you have all these different agencies. So the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And there's all these different um, rules that apply to different people. And just think about the case that we looked at. This, the, a guy that we're calling Carlos, um, he is a uh, young man who's got a six-year-old daughter. He came alone with her, his wife. He has one daughter. His wife is in Honduras. His mother is in Honduras. I've spoken to all of these people, and and they all have told a little piece of it. But you think about it, you know, the family's in Honduras. He's in Livingston, Texas. The daughter is in Phoenix, Arizona. His aunt, who is the only one who has been in regular contact with the girl, with the six-year-old girl who has asthma, by the way, is in Simi Valley, California. And so um, one of the problems that I heard about yesterday with Carlos is that um, the aunt wants to get the kid um, and get, get get the kid out of detention, but um, they, uh, but but Carlos apparently said, you know, I want my kid back, and so they're trying to reunite with him. He's given up his asylum claim. His attorneys were telling him to try to undo that. So it's just a legal quagmire and a custody quagmire, and that you got you've got these different tracks that are operating uh, that Edgar talked about, where you've got one set of deadlines uh, impacting the kids and one set of deadline impacting the parents, and we thought. When we stumbled upon this story in Houston, we thought we were looking at, a, at an outlier situation. And then as we're reporting the story, we see a DH fact sheet saying that Port Isabel is going to become a reunification and removal center, meaning that reunification going in tandem with removal um, and people basically being told that, hey, if you want your kids quickly, you want them now, just sign leave. a volu- just leave, sign a voluntary deportation order, and we'll make it happen. But nobody seems to know how logistically that could really happen. And also, I mean, doesn't that seem like a horrific strategy for people who have come here basically saying I'm unsafe? You know, the reason I've come to your country is I'm seeking asylum. It's too dangerous for me to go back home. You know, these people have small kids, and we're basically saying to them, I mean, it feels like bribery or extortion. It's like, all right, you came here you wanted to go through the asylum process we're telling you the only way to get your kid back right away yeah. is to you know give up whatever claim you had yeah you know the irony and, and and the heartbreaking scenario here is that central american migrants in particular and we talked a lot about this in 2016 in our bordering on insecurity series but they when they the minute they cross that river in guatemala into mexico they get shaken down they get abused. They, a lot of the women get sexually assaulted. Um, 
it's it's a trail of tears up to our border and then they cross the border and then they go into detention and they get shaken down for phone calls and they get extorted and then when they get out a lot of times and unfortunately by other other people in the migrant community um shake them down on rent and and all kinds of other things so it, it's 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 very heartbreaking what happens to them and now you know now they're faced with but you know talk about being between a rock and a hard place which is basically told, you know, you have to give up, um, you know, you're going to have to give up this asylum claim, go back to where you, where you were fleeing in the first place. And I really think this speaks to a larger problem that we talked about again in 2016, which is that the conditions in these countries are really horrific. And I know that like foreign aid is not a popular thing or whatever, but until the situation in those countries improves, we're going to have people in our hemisphere, on our border. We know a lot more about Syria. We know a lot more about the Middle East than we do about what's going on in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, the Northern Triangle. And it's, 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 a, it's right on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to learn more about this and do something about what's happening in those countries. Edgar and Nina, the, a lot of questions we're seeing on social media from people who've been pinging us are, and we've seen this in sort of hashtag form too, where are the girls? You know, they've seen, we've seen all mm. these pictures of, you know, young men, boys at these um, sort of, you know, child care facilities. That question's been asked a lot. I mean, is there, are they in separate facilities? Do we know where young women or little girls are? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I was at a roundtable in Westlaco on Friday that was hosted by Senators John Cornyn and Ted Cruz, and uh, questions were asked at that roundtable with official answers about our siblings being separated. And I believe it was an official either from the Office of Refugee Resettlement or from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, who said, we do not separate siblings. That was his statement. I don't know if that's exact actually what's happening on the ground. We've heard uh, reports that are different. He said problems can arise when you have you know, something like a 16-year-old sibling and a two-month-old sibling together, mm -hmm. that there are foster homes that may not be equipped for that, that there are some regulations around having an infant in a foster home along with a teenager. But he said even in those cases, we have some foster homes that are equipped to deal with that, and so we're keeping siblings together. Um, I'm getting reports from one fam family that I'm following that this is not the case, that siblings are being separated. So I don't really know what's happening on the ground. And in terms of shelters, I think there's some separation of gender, I'd assume, but I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen that, Edgar. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know exactly without having been inside the facilities, and the facilities are not opening their doors right now, mm -hmm. right, you know. But um, what, we, what we're hearing is reports, so even at, at shelters that are housing both, you know, young boys and girls. Um, obviously, there's separation within the facilities. Um, and again, you look at a place like Casa Padre has more than like 1,500 kids. It's a, it's a large facility. So yes, yeah, separation of by gender within the facility is, is something. You hear of siblings, you know, almost sort of like losing contact with each other, but within the same shelter mm, because uh -huh. they are set. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, these facilities do care for um, Girls, in fact, um, when you read through the inspection reports, um, a number, you know, state regulators will cite these facilities for various deficiencies, and a lot of them actually have to do with young mothers. So a teenage girl who's in the facility but um, is, you know, also has, you know, a, an infant with her, um, and, you know, there's all sorts of, that situation is delicate and requires a lot of specific sort of medical attention, et cetera, and, and we, we did see... Um, in analyzing those um, records, that that was sort of a recurring area where there were um, deficiencies. 
Great. Uh, Jay, before we lose you here, will you tell us a little bit about what's happening on military bases in Texas? We're seeing some movement that looks like folks are going to be moved there. Um, what are you hearing? Well, uh, just what I've read, honestly, I haven't looked into this personally, just that Fort Bliss in, in El Paso and I believe San Angelo, mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, uh, I, I believe, that's my understanding is yep. that that's also the another place in Texas where there's going to be family detention. Mm -hmm. um, and is it just that we have so many folks right. basically to account for right now that there's not enough space for them in existing facilities? Right, or? and I think what's going to be really interesting, you know, uh, my understanding is Congress is not going to pass this bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I think the House might, the U.S. House might pass this immigration bill that deals in some ways with the Flores Settlement, which has, which spells out what you can and can't do with people in family detention and, and kids in detention. Um, so um, we could we could be having a massive lawsuit at some point if people are held on military bases or wherever they're held, if they're held in family detention um and they stay more than 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 the Flores settlement calls for and congress hasn't tweaked that settlement in the meantime which i would not count on the congress to ungridlock itself anytime soon right great well thank you jay we're gonna swap jay okay. out for executive Someone editor ross ramsey <laughs> yeah right uh but uh, just before we hit our next topic uh, i want to thank another sponsor and that's my alma mater, the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. The Medill School is proud to support alumnus and Texas Tribune founder Evan Smith in his mission to promote civic engagement and public policy discourse through quality journalism. You did that with kind of a straight face. That was great. Well, you know, Evan is definitely the most, the more popular uh, Medill graduate. I think he probably has given more to the school. It's probably just bribery, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> all right, so, Ross, it just so happened we had a poll in the field while all of this was going on at the border, and we had just so happened to ask a really timely question about whether Texas voters believed families should be separated at the border in the name of immigration enforcement. What did we learn? They don't. 57% um, said they oppose that policy. 28% said that they approve of that policy. There was a partisan split that was kind of what you would expect. The Republicans were with the president, but not as strongly as he might have hoped. 46% of Republicans were supportive of the policy. 83% of Democrats opposed the policy. And when you break it down and look at um, Republicans on gender, you can see why so many Republican officials changed their tact. You look at the first few days of this thing, a lot of people were pretty strongly in favor of the stout enforcement on the border and then a lot of them took a 90-degree turn. Ted Cruz did. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a bunch of them did. He was indicative of kind of what the crowd did. And it's because if you look in these numbers, um, which were early in this thing, they were we came out of the field on the 17th, which was a week ago Sunday. Right. Um, Republican women are against this policy, 42% to 37%. Republican men are for this policy, 56 to 30 A lot of Republicans, particularly those in swing districts around the country, looked at that and went, we need to change this policy. Mm -hmm. In the same poll, we asked people and have been asking people for a long time what the most important problems facing the state are. And immigration and border security are regularly at the top of the Republican chart. They remain there. So I think the indication here is that Republicans are still pretty strict about immigration enforcement and border security, and they haven't really moved their position there, but they don't like this separation of families at all. Mm -hmm. Did you see any variation based on ethnicity in those results? So, you know, white respondents versus you know, black respondents versus Hispanic. We saw a little. We didn't see everything that you might expect. And in fact, more Hispanics than you would think. I don't have the number right in front of me, but more Hispanics than you think. 
um, I think it was were 25%. supportive of the supportive of the, prob of the strict enforcement at the border. Right. And, I mean, I remember looking at that and thinking 25% of Hispanic voters, you know, do not, think it's okay to separate families in the name of immigration it's, enforcement. It's not unusual along the border for people along the border to be pretty strongly in favor of border security, um, you know, however they feel about immigration law. And there's some nuance in there if you say, you know, where do you put immigration on the, on the list of things in importance? You get one answer, but if you say border security, you get another answer. Mm -hmm. And in places along the border, it's not the whole border, but in places along the border where they feel insecure for some reason, those numbers go up and, you know, the, the population's Hispanic. Nina, when you were on the ground last week, you know, did you get any sense of public opinion? You know, were you in restaurants or coffee shops or anything like that? And were, you know, people, were people abuzz about it or not really? Well, I went to a vigil on Thursday night, I believe, in downtown McAllen, um, and it was uh, pretty crowded. You know, we thought it was going to be one of these events that you see more media there than, you know, normal people, and that wasn't the case. There were at least 250 people there, and it really looked like people who just lived in the area. Um, it, was a, it was supposed to be a nonpartisan vigil um, organized by religious leaders mostly and some political leaders. And it was very much, you know, we don't want to talk about politics other than the fact that we are against the family separation policy. And I did speak to families there, some of whom, um, you know, live along the border um, and had never been to a rally like this before, had never been to a political event. And I did talk to people who said it was this family separation thing that I heard about in my church or whatever it was that really mobilized me. So I do think it's mobilizing a lot of people in these border communities who might obviously are impacted by immigration policy probably on a regular basis like many of us are, but hadn't really thought about it much until this family separation policy came into focus. Yeah, I think the religious community aspect has been really interesting yeah. to this, particularly for, you know, social conservative lawmakers who had to come, you know, take a stand on this. It moved it out of politics and it humanized a story mm -hmm. that hasn't been humanized. I mean, it's easy to have a, a set of opinions and you see in polling that they're pretty, um, you know, uh, constrained is what the pollsters call them. They're, they're pretty set in their ways. You know, they feel this way about immigration. They feel this way about border security. But when you put faces on a particular story and when it's this kind of a story, people, you know, turn off their politics and turn on their, you know, humanity a little bit and right. uh, say, you know, keep these families together. You know, and, and some of them are saying keep the families together and deport them, to be right, sure. Right, right. But, but they're saying don't split these families up. Well, I think also what's interesting is a lot of this has been happening for quite a while. I mean, even there were isolated reports of family separation before this announcement of zero tolerance. Um, family detention, which is coming back into focus in some of these terrible, you know, con immigration detention centers with terrible conditions is coming back into focus. We're showing people being released with ankle monitors with their children, and people are reacting to that. That's been going on for years. But I think the fact that the Trump administration came out and said, this is what we are doing, we are doing zero tolerance, and this is our actual policy, you know, made a huge, just made a huge difference because that was an, a clear announcement from them. It was an admission that this is what we're doing, and it was no longer a, maybe it's happening sometimes, maybe it's not. And that just also, I think, that announcement from them really caught people's attention. That announcement is what prompted us to put it in the poll. You know, we, we mm -hmm. put this poll together before this kind of blew up. and. You know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, why did you think to put that in your thing? It's because uh, the attorney general came out and said, we're going to do a zero tolerance policy. Right. Mm -hmm. And we just sort of had a regular question about, you know, wonder how that's going to go down. Right. Amazing timing. Right. Uh, well, as if we didn't have enough huge news this week, Monday was also the five-year anniversary of the Wendy Davis abortion filibuster. Uh, if you haven't watched it yet, we produced a really compelling documentary on the topic, sort of, you know, looking at it five years out. Um, you know, I'm curious, obviously, Ross, you've covered this stuff for a lot of years. Edgar used to be a healthcare reporter for us. 
you know, five years out, what is the legacy of this? Have there been, you know, true implications or is this something that's going to be forgotten after the next five years? You know, we haven't had an electoral tale on this. You know, it, it kind of um, vaulted Wendy Davis into the governor's race in 2014. Um, she got beat by 20 or 21 points, so pretty resounding loss there. Um, and, you know, the, the hope of some on her side after this thing in the Senate five years ago was that this would be a, a call to arms and that Democrats and, and women would um, jump into the electoral process in a way that they hadn't previously done. And that didn't materialize in 14 or really 16. We've seen a lot of women in politics in um, 18, and we'll see how that goes in November. But the, I think the, the outsized hope that, you know, this was going to be a political movement didn't immediately take effect. You know, so, so that was the first piece. The other piece was that the Republicans won the day. And um, in, the peculiarity about this thing, just watching the way it went down and the way everybody reacted to it and talks about it now, is that the winners are sort of down about the win and the losers are sort of up about the mm -hmm. loss. It's like everybody came out of it upside down in a, in a funny way, you know, with yeah. well, different feelings think, than I you mean, would expect. Edgar, obviously, you've watched abortion legislation in this state since then. I mean, th did they have any kind of legislative victory here, or has this been sort of all downhill from there? Well, no. I mean, no. No legislative victory to speak of. And in fact, I, I mean, as somebody who's watched abortion legislation for several years, I mean, obviously, legislation is important, especially in a red state like Texas. The goal is always, you know, you've got a red legislature, red governor, it's always let's put more and more restrictions. And as a result of that, I mean, the courts really seem to be sort of where it's at on the question of abortion, like what's going to change? It, it always seems like it comes down to like, what's the court going to say? And, you know, it, it's, you know, the filibuster was a big moment for sort of the question of reproductive and abortion rights in Texas, but what's really been the biggest news since then? I think it's the Supreme Court right. mm -hmm. <laughs> change, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it's hard for me to, you know, s talk about sort of lasting impacts of, you know, this one filibuster. You know, I, I kind of feel like the Supreme Court's where it's at. And yeah. Well, there were two things in this documentary that we produced that were most surprising to me. The first was, you know, former state senator Bob Dool, who's obviously an abortion opponent, a Republican, said basically, you know, the third technicality that ended the, the Wendy Davis filibuster, he basically said it wasn't legit. Right. I, you know, he was like, well, I thought that one was a stretch, which I thought was pretty a pretty brave thing to say on the record. Well, you know, he's no longer in there. And yeah, He's right. grown a Tom Petty beard, <laughs> and he's out there, you know, practicing medicine in yeah. Greenville, Texas again. You Playing know. his drums, yeah. Uh, but, it was, but it was interesting. You know, the Republicans really wanted that thing to end so that they could get that bill through before the midnight bell tolled, and they um, did everything they could to shut Wendy Davis down which they ultimately did. They did the three strikes thing and then other Democrats picked it up and, and belabored it until after the bell went off. Right. So, um, yeah, it was interesting that, that he had that point of view. A lot of other Republicans were sort of like this was, it was interesting listening to people say this was the greatest night of the Senate and it was the worst night of the Senate. <laughs> right. And just sort of the impact that it had on them. But outside of the building, you know, the, the impact was um, symbolic, but not as outsized as a lot of us thought at the time when we were watching it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting how raw the, f the sort of feelings were, negative feelings were. You know, you watched like current Senator Connie Burton basically say of Wendy Davis, you know, 
this won't have a lasting legacy because, quote, people like winners. And, you know, referencing her loss in the gubernatorial race. It did seem like people are still pretty pissed about this and are, you know, we're trying to stick it to each other even in the sort of, even five years later. Yeah, the the wounds are still pretty raw. Yep. On both sides, it looks like. Yep. All right, well, we have a couple more minutes here just um, to get us back full circle to the border. What do you guys think is in store for the next couple of weeks? I mean, what are you anticipating from either your coverage or what you're expecting to see on the ground? What's next? Well, I think um, I'd like to talk about it from the perspective of the family that, you know, I'm following. I think that kind of embodies all of the policy questions here. Um, You know, number one, are, you know, are most of the parents who were separated from their kids going to end up being deported? Um, it seems like that might off, might be the case at least for a large chunk of them, or, you know, or, um, especially with this change in policy over asylum. Um, if they're no longer able to get asylum for fear of gang violence or domestic violence, as Attorney General Jeff Sessions has said, what else is there left for them? Um, so, and and um, if they do get deported, will they be able to go back with their children? Um, at the roundtable I was at on Friday, the suggestion was that, or the, the indication was that they get the choice. Once they're told they're going to be deported, they're asked, do you want to be deported with your children? Some parents may say, no, I'd like them to stay in the United States with a family member or a sponsor that the government chooses. Um, or they'll say, yes, I'd want, I want my children to be returned to me. Then how long is that process going to take, and is it actually going to happen? We've already heard isolated reports of you know, parents being deported without their children, and that's not what their intention was. So I think that's, you know, and, you know, next two days, is the government going to come up with a clear plan for how this is going to happen, and are they going to communicate that properly to the public and to these parents and their children? Um, are children going to get lost? Are they going to walk out of these facilities? Are, are, um, how bad is this going to get in terms of chaos and, and too much bureaucracy and problems? Um, and, yeah, so for this family, you know, um, uh, is this this woman from Guatemala who we know is in an immigration detention center in Port Isabel, is she going to be able to be reunited with her four children who are now in a shelter in Arizona? Is there any refuge for non-Mexicans in Mexico if they're, if they're deported out of the U.S.? We were just talking about that at an earlier meeting. Right. Uh, and I think the answer is you can seek asylum in Mexico, right? You could. Edgar, you know anymore? Yeah, you yes. can. Um, but would you rather do it in the U.S.? Uh, I think for the vast majority of people, yes. And that's mm-hmm. why people are coming here. I mean, so it's not necessarily the case that if you get deported from the U.S. that you're on your way back to whatever you were running from in the first place. You may be on your way back to Mexico. Well, they'll, they'll no, deport no. you to no, your home country, to your country if you country. get deported. Okay. I think you Mexican, decide to turn Mexico back. would not be thrilled if we basically said we're just we're shutting They don't just take you back to yeah. the bridge. <laughs> <and> <laughs> um, but, you know, for the families I talked to on, on the bridge that were not allowed to cross for a little bit, their concern was you know, they didn't want to stay in Mexico. First of all, in these border towns, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of fear about what's going to happen to them there. They're in Mexico in illegally. In the border towns on the Mexican side. In the border side. town on the Mexico side, yes, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, and there are people, w- you know, waiting to take advantage of them. Right. Um, so they're, th- that's not a place they want to stay. And, of course, they're in Mexico illegally, and so they face the, the threat, the same threat of being caught in Mexico and being deported from there to their home country. Are there any numbers on on how many of the kids are definitely, we know who this kid is, we know which adult this kid should be brought back to, and how many kids are sort of like, well, we think we know, but we're not sure. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sort of brings me back to how I was going to answer Emily's original question, which is that I think there are, for me at least, there are two burning questions that I think every reporter, but like basically everybody in the U.S. who's paying attention right now is asking. The first is... Um, 
if you believe the Trump administration's numbers, there were roughly, you know, we're talking about a pool of maybe 2,500 kids or so who were separated from their families. And according to the federal government, maybe 500 of those have been successfully reunited mm-hmm. with their parents. So the one question is, what's going to happen to the other 2,000 kids? And will we ever know? I mean, will we know the resolution? Will they ever be reunited with their parents? How long will that take? Um, I mean, that to me is just the question that everybody wants to answer right now. And then the the second question is this broader political, I think, question, which is that um, Trump was elected basically on this premise that the United States should not be a f- as friendly of a p- place for people to come seek asylum and seek refuge. Right. Um, and a lot of people seem to agree with that and voted him into office. Um, but does that change at all when you actually, we as a country are faced with the images of what that really looks like? I mean, it's so fascinating to me that people are who identify very strongly with very sort of hardline opinions on immigration can, according to the poll, express that they feel differently when they actually see what that entails, when it involves removing a mother from her child. Yeah, the other political question is, right, how much of the current immigration policy that's been going on for years and years is going to come back up after this, that people are suddenly gonna realize, wait a minute, I wasn't, I never would have been okay with this if I had known. I mean, family detention, that's not a new thing. But now we're going to see these pictures of, you right. know, or, or see these images of families in detention centers for potentially weeks or months, you know, and that's been going on since the Obama administration. Um, is, the, is the attitude towards that going to change as well? Right. Well, we are going to continue asking and answering those questions. Um, that's all the time we have today. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, Texas Southern University, and the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Edgar, Nina, Jay, and our producers Todd, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Tell me when you're ready.